Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor at the first face-to-face EU summit in Brussels since February. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor, normally in Dublin but currently at home in my kitchen in Kildare. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and in Dublin. Well, masks on, social distancing at the ready, elbows poised for bumping. We'll take a quick look at what EU leaders are hoping to achieve in Brussels and what it means for Brexit. And we'll cast a gimlet eye over the UK's plan to take back control from Brussels, but not necessarily give that control to Britain's regions. We'll be assessing the prospects for a breakthrough anytime soon in the future relationship negotiations. And catching up with the Northern Ireland Protocol and how it's being implemented. But first, Tony, it'd be rude of us not to mention the summit where you are at the moment. We've had many Brexit-themed summits in the past, but this is definitely isn't one of them, even though it will have a knock-on effect. Tell us how things are going there so far today as we record this on Friday in the late afternoon. It's very intense, column, and it promises to be a very long night and a long weekend uh, for those of us having to cover this. And we're covering it, obviously, at a distance because the press and media in general are not allowed anywhere near the uh, summit venue, the Justice Lispius building and the Europa building here in Brussels. Uh, everything is being streamed out by the European Council TV and audiovisual services. And if you want to get your hands on a prime minister, you have to arrange uh, a date, uh, a rendezvous beforehand. Uh, so we did manage to speak to uh, Michal Martin, uh, the Taoiseach, on his first summit uh, duty as Taoiseach. Uh, and of course, as you say, it is the first summit that we've had since, uh, since late uh, February. But they're trying to get an agreement on the 750 billion euro COVID-19 recovery plan uh, and it's proving to be an extremely difficult project and a lot of politics, a lot of division on this, even though there is a sense that Europe has to step up to the plate and this is a moment of truth for Europe, as Emmanuel Macron has said. But there's just still a lot of disagreements over how much the fund should be, how much should go by way of loans, uh, how much should be in the form of grants, which would effectively be free money, and what the conditionality uh, should be attached to to the money. So uh, there's a lot of very technical and potentially divisive uh, issues at hand. So this morning, Friday morning, leaders were supposed to deliver um, their national pitch in a roundtable setting uh, uh, and then break for lunch and then go into bilaterals. But as I speak to you, uh, it's four o'clock in the afternoon here in, sorry, five o'clock in Brussels. uh, And they still seem to be in the room, uh, having had lunch in the room itself. uh, And as far as I'm aware, those bilaterals haven't started. So that gives you an indication of how uh, tricky this issue will be. Yeah, I've heard Uh, talk of Monday morning, which I'm sure gave you a sinking feeling if you heard those rumours too. Has it gone more the way of potentially convening another summit instead of trying to get it all done in one weekend? Or are people still staying relatively optimistic that something can be achieved this time around? Monday morning has certainly been mentioned. And remember, the last time leaders met was at the end of February when when they were meeting to try and crunch out an agreement on the seven-year EU budget. And that involved bilateral talks that that went on all night 
Uh, I remember the Taoiseach as he was then, Leo Varadkar, arriving at two in the morning and going straight to a, a bilateral with Charles Michel, the president of the European Council. Uh, and th- that was a, an extremely grueling and exhausting experience for leaders. So they want to try and avoid that. So they will do their bilaterals as far as they can tonight. And then if it looks like there's the shape of some kind of compromised on the key crunch issues, then uh, Charles Michel will present what's called a negotiating box, uh, which is basically a, a fresh draft of what the budget will look like and the recovery fund will look like uh, to leaders tomorrow, Saturday. And uh, then they will either grind things on over the weekend and into Monday. But if, if things are just looking too desperate and the gaps are too wide, then they'll simply park things tomorrow and come back uh, another time, probably by the end of July, uh, the German presidency of the EU is very keen to get this issue sorted in July. Um, but uh, time is running out and, you know, the, the issues are pretty toxic. Right. And look, as we say, this isn't a Brexit so much as many others have been. But I mean, it does have an influence, like the state of the EU's readiness to deal with economic shocks, their ability to organise responses to those shocks, the ability to sell the idea of solidarity to the worst affected areas. So, for example, this five billion Brexit recovery element that's there in the 750 billion pot that they're talking about, you know, it it speaks to European unity and its ability to be cohesive. So it's not divorced from Brexit. No, it's not. And, and um, you're right on, on in the way you've framed uh, all of those aspects of the uh, of the summit. Um, I mean, the, the reason why there's this Brexit adjustment reserve, as it's called in there, is because countries like Ireland and Belgium are not just on the front line when it comes to Brexit. They're also quite unhappy at the way the recovery fund is being divvied up. Uh, now, the European Commission had the task of trying to figure out how this 750 billion euro fund would be dispersed, uh, who gets what, in other words. And they were using what's called an allocation key or a, a methodology to work that out. And they effectively took a snapshot of each member state's economy going back a couple of years. And at the time of this snapshot, Ireland's economy was doing pretty well. You know, we, we didn't have the kind of metrics on youth unemployment that would, according to this methodology, bump you up the, the league table in terms of getting a big whack of the money. Um, uh, we had more fiscal space than some countries to to deal with the effect of the pandemic. Uh, so Ireland has been pushing and other countries have been pushing to have the allocation key changed. In other words, the criteria by which the money is uh, divided out changed. But at, at every turn, if they tried a different methodology, it, it you, you got into a kind of a zero-sum game where somebody would lose and somebody would gain and, and then the, no, no one appeared to be happy with whatever tinkering was being done to the allocation key. So in order to, to placate countries like Ireland, Charles Michel introduced this idea of a Brexit recovery fund, uh, sorry, Bre- a Brexit reserve fund, uh, and, and the idea being that well, if Europe is going to completely, you know, refit its economy in a post-pandemic world, then you've got to look at the round and and look at all in the round at all the 
big asymmetric shocks that are coming our way. And Ireland was able to argue that Brexit was uh, one of those uh, asymmetric shocks that, uh, you know, will affect how our economy emerges from the pandemic. So there's a figure of five billion in there. I'm, I understand that not everybody is happy with this idea. I think the Swedes have been muttering about why Brexit should be part of this recovery fund uh, because Brexit, in their view, would have nothing to do with the, the impact of the pandemic. Uh, but nonetheless, it is on the table and it would be up to the European Commission to work out how you, again, how you measure which country should get some of this Brexit money. Uh, would this be down to a fall in trade flows from the UK? Uh, would it be down to a, a, you know, a drop in GDP? Ireland's GDP is going to fall anyway, no matter whether there's a, a Brexit deal or no Brexit deal at the end of this year. So the government is seeing this as somewhat compensating for the the three billion that we would be getting from the recovery fund based on the allocation key that the commission has uh, has been using right it, it will very much depend how shocking brexit is on the outcome of the negotiations that are going on at the moment now in the last couple of episodes we've been talking about the push to try and get something done by the end of july which both the uk and the eu want if we're to see I suppose, the real structure of a deal come in by October. How are things going at the the moment? What's the level of engagement? And more to the point, have we seen movement on any side? Because last week, if people didn't hear last week's episode, Michel Barnier was saying he heard the UK position and he understood it, which was seen as meaningful and him offering out room for some kind of compromise on the EU side. Boris Johnson, the consideration is is that it'll it'll get to the point where he'll have to make some kind of a concession simply because time is is running out. But have we seen any evidence of the bones of the kinds of concessions that might be made on either side in this week's talks? Uh, well, we haven't, Colm, and, and that is a bit of a moot point because we had, as you say, a number of weeks where the negotiations were alternating between Brussels and London. We had a smaller format, uh, you know, not so much piles of experts and and technical officials in the room, but uh, a more select grouping of people who could maybe unpick some of the knots in the negotiations. Um, And then everything would build up to next week, which will be a, a full round of negotiations in London, uh, and that's where people were expecting some something to happen, some movement to happen. Now, things have taken a turn for the worse because um, the UK apparently were looking for some kind of document or report that would contain the outline of an agreement uh, on the key crunch issues, the key stumbling blocks. And they were effectively rebuffed by Michel Barnier and the EU task force because they felt, well, you know, we have an outline document for these negotiations and it's called the political declaration, which you guys have been kind of walking away from. The second reason for the resistance from the EU side was that the last time both sides produced a joint report um, on anything, it was the joint report on Ireland and the Northern Ireland border back in December 2017. And we all remember how badly that went because not only did you have two apparently contradictory paragraphs in there, which still haunt us to this day, the idea that there will be uh, you know, no uh, physical border on the island of Ireland and yet no 
a completely unfeathered uh, trade between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. Right, Schrodinger's um, compromise. Uh, uh, Schrodinger's compromise, exactly. Uh, and I think the EU just did not want to get into another, you know, paper trail where they could be snagged by language in that uh, outline document. Uh, their view is, look, we need to start writing the text itself. We can't be wasting time drawing up outline agreements that, that might get us into more of a detour uh, around the use of language and so on. And I think because of that rebuff, uh, the UK side have kind of folded their arms and says, well, if that's your attitude, then uh, we're not moving uh, very far. So pessimists are saying that, that things are not looking great. Uh, optimists are saying, well, despite all of that, there is not a landing zone per se on the difficult issues, but uh, what I'm told is a trajectory towards a landing zone. Right. I've seen one so, of the, the, the things that was cited as, as optimism in an article I was reading during the week as, well, you're not getting these press releases with people making accusations at one another. So it's a sign the mood music has improved, even if there isn't any obvious sign of movement. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that's been carefully managed. You know, we've had last week, we had Michel Barnier and David Frost, his opposite number, having dinner. Um and the same will will be the case uh, next week when, when the talks go back to London. Right. Uh, and they haven't been sending kind of nasty public letters to each other. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, when, when we talk about the movement that people, people have identified this month, it, okay, first of all, Michel Barnier has said, look, as you mentioned, look, we understand the UK's red lines. We understand they don't want to have any presence or oversight of the European Court of Justice in the UK. And as I said last week, member states are taking that on board. They're mentally preparing themselves to compromise on the European Court of Justice. But again, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, state aid, that very thorny issue, yeah. both sides are having to walk a very, very fine line because... Well, it's interesting. You're... I, the the issue of state aid it seems to be a key sticking point. I saw Elvir Fabri of the Jacques Delors Institute quoted in the Financial Times there a couple of days ago saying that, you know, the EU side wants to know what the UK position on state aid is. The problem is the UK can't tell them because it's got its own problems at home with the issue of state aid, and the devolved regions are part of that problem. Yeah, but just to conclude the point. You know, if the EU is going to compromise on removing the European Court of Justice from the equation, they have to, A, have something in there that will be legally robust and that will work over time. Um, and and, they, and at the same time, they can't, uh, you know, deny the, the role of the ECJ in the whole realm of state aid at, at the EU because... The state aids, uh, the, the European Court of Justice generates jurisprudence, uh, a body of law which is extremely important for the for the EU, for the way the treaties are run, for the way policy is run. And if that jurisprudence is is in some ways duplicated by another model of state aids that gets created by this Brexit negotiation, then you have a kind of a bifurcated jurisprudence uh, on state aid and that's something that would first of all be politically unacceptable to the EU but it would also face I'm pretty sure a legal challenge at the European Court of Justice so that so the European Court of Justice is you know it it also will have its own 
um, you know, jealously wanting to jealously guard its rights uh, on the state aid issue. Um, and that's why this is a very tricky path for both sides to tread. Right. Well, as 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 I mentioned there a second ago, the one of the tricky parts of it on the UK side is is the devolved regions, which we kind of mentioned last week. But it's interesting the language that's been used. London is saying that it wants a level playing field with the devolved administration, so that it wants common standards on state aid, food, the environment, and animal welfare. It's I mean it's an interesting position to be in that level playing field from the Europeans is re- regarded as a dreadful imposition. But a sensible mm. policy when it comes to what the UK wants to do with the devolved administrations on Scotland, presumably, is going to chaff under the yoke of that. Yeah, I mean, the, again, the language, as you say, is is very interesting. Uh, Michael Gove described the effect of Brexit as a power surge for the regions because there are a lot of competences that were handled at EU level uh, that relate to the regions that are now being. Uh, brought back to the UK and Michael Gove is saying, you know, look, you can have these, uh, some of these competences yourselves as devolved regions uh, in the area of uh, food safety and energy and other areas here and there. But when it comes to state aid, uh, it looks like uh, Westminster is going to grab that one uh, for itself uh, and not give the, the Scots or the Welsh any potential to have its own state aid rules um, or any potential to, you know, have clever, subtle barriers to trade. Uh, Just say, for example, uh, you know, uh, the ability to label certain goods uh, in a particularly Scottish way that might discriminate against English goods that that would be coming across the border. Um, So that's going to be a very interesting uh, political battle for for the UK and its internal dynamics, but it has, as you say, held up any progress at all on state aid because, as you say again, and as you quoted uh, the Jacques Delors Institute, you know the, the the UK can't spell out what its state aid regime is going to be until it has figured it out itself how it's going to look. Uh, internally in the UK. In Westminster during the week, the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee was using some pretty strong language, I suppose, which is hardly surprising seeing as the report is made up of evidence that was presented to it over the last while. But it was saying that businesses are ill-prepared and accused the British government of having a lack of understanding and an overly political approach to post-Brexit trading arrangements. It's quite strong language, but no doubt it reflects the strength of feeling amongst business interests in Northern Ireland which could be summed up, I suppose, in one word, frustration over the last number of years. Yeah, I mean, I think the business community in Northern Ireland have felt very betrayed by the way the UK government is handling the reality of the Northern Ireland protocol and the way that rhetorically in the first months after the protocol was agreed, they tended to go into a complete denial about what the protocol meant in real terms for northern businesses. This whole question of whether or not there would be checks and controls on goods coming into Northern Ireland from Great Britain, but also leaving Northern Ireland uh, and going to Great Britain. And first of all, a lot of this kind of rhetoric really alienated the EU who felt that they were being, uh, in a sense, taken for a ride by the UK because the UK had just signed an international treaty which provides for these checks and controls on the Irish Sea and then seemed to be publicly denying it. And and that fed into a lot of the distrust that emerged between both sides in the first months of this year. But it also 
left businesses in Northern Ireland completely bereft of certainty, uh, detail about what would happen to them, like truck uh, haulage companies, uh, ferry companies, high street businesses, supermarkets. What will it mean for them in terms of shipping goods out of and into Northern Ireland? What will it mean in terms of bringing food into Northern Ireland? There are 200 um, lorry, lorry crossings a day bringing food from Great Britain into Northern Ireland to fill supermarket shelves. And all of that food is going to be subject to EU checks and controls because it is coming from a third country. Any food coming into the EU from a third country is subject to this checking and controlling regime. But yet, there, for a long time, there was no detail about uh, where these checks would take place, uh, what checks would be uh, absolutely mandatory, what discretion might there be, and how much this would all cost. Uh, because every time you have a consignment of food brought in to the EU and it gets checked at a border control post, uh, which has to be designated by the EU, that costs money. And it's usually the either the trader or the haulage company who has to pay for that check. Um, so you can you have seen this mounting frustration from Northern Ireland businesses across the spectrum uh, as to what uh, is going on and when will the UK get real in terms of what the real costs are going to be and when the infrastructure, the IT systems, the VAT systems will, will be put in place. Now, I would, I would say that um, it's important to acknowledge that once the UK brought out its command paper at the end of May, uh, spelling out in more detail how things are going to work and effectively mandating the Northern Ireland Executive and Assembly to start the work on getting stuff going. Uh, that has been broadly welcomed by everybody. But again, it's very late in the day and there's a lot of stuff that may not be ready by the end of the year. Right. Not terribly encouraging uh, <laughs> when, when you when you consider what's at stake for uh, Northern Ireland. I think by most analysis it's going to be the worst impacted part of the UK by uh, by Brexit. Yeah, I mean, the, the, um, the just to, to take some examples of, uh, you know, what can go wrong. Um, there was a meeting this week of the specialised subcommittee on Northern Ireland. Of course, the withdrawal agreement provides for these subcommittees that deal with the, the different protocols attached to the to the withdrawal agreement. Right. Of course, who, the one who's on, who's about, on the subcommittees? The subcommittee would be... Um, would be senior civil servants uh, from the UK who deal with Northern Ireland and senior officials in the European Commission who have dealt with the uh, the protocol. So uh, on the UK side, there's a, a senior official called Brendan Threlfall. And on the EU side, you have Thomas Lieflander, who is uh, a German lawyer who has been working intensely on the withdrawal agreement uh, over the past uh, couple of years. In fact, he was one of the, the key drafters of the withdrawal agreement and the protocol. So he knows he knows it inside out. So they they had a, they had their second meeting this week and it was preceded by a, a two and a half days of uh, technical uh, meetings between officials, which apparently was extremely intense, very detailed, went, went through all of the uh, areas uh, that need to be fixed for the protocol to work. Um, and while this has been very encouraging for the EU, who have long called for that kind of detailed engagement with the UK, uh, it has kind of cast into relief um, the like what 
has to be done and what may not be done on time uh, for the end of the year. And, and one of those is VAT. Uh, and this has sort of been one of these unsung heroes of the, the Northern Ireland Protocol because people find VAT complicated and uh, confusing. But effectively, Northern Ireland is going to be keeping uh, EU VAT rules. And under the single market, if you sell a product from one member state to another, the VAT is paid by the recipient of the product, so the importer. Now, for all that to work, you have a thing called the, the VAT information exchange system, which is a, an IT system that basically all member states are plugged into so that each member state's customs and tax authorities can follow the paper trail uh, to make sure that VAT is being paid where it should be paid. Right. Now, when the UK was a member, um, all traders in the UK had a, a VAT identification number uh, to plug in to that system. Um, including Northern Ireland traders. But with the UK out, they're going to have to create a brand new VAT identification system that is specific to Northern Ireland. Um, uh, and that will allow to foot the Northern... bill for that or is that yet to be discussed? Well, HMRC, the UK Customs Service, is going to have to foot the bill for that one. But the, the trouble is that unless this system is up and ready and the, and the Northern Ireland VAT system can talk to all of the other uh, EU VAT systems, then uh, the, the system will get completely gummed up. And it will mean that potentially you can't have trades across the border on the island of Ireland because um, you know revenue commissioners in the south will need to know that somebody in Dublin, an exporter in Dublin, uh, isn't liable for VAT uh, because the VAT will have been paid by the recipient of the product in Northern Ireland. But if there isn't a paper trail there, an electronic paper trail, uh, that's not a contradiction in terms, then, you know, the system is not going to work. And, you know, EU officials have been tearing their hair out about this for months. Um, <laughs> I'm really and, tearing uh, my hair listening to it, yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they, they haven't, uh, there's a real concern that this IT system will not be ready on time. Um, and, and that's, uh, you know, why there is now real engagement clearly by the UK at a technical level on, on what's going to happen with the protocol. Uh, you know, it, it is throwing up issues like this, like VAT. Also, uh, customs, you know, th there's a concern that there aren't enough customs agents that have been trained or will have been trained on time. I saw a figure it's, of 50,000 customs agents being needed. For the whole of the UK, exactly. Mm. Uh uh, and, you know, you, you've had customs uh, experts on who are saying that, you know, customs isn't one of those career paths that suck in thousands of graduates. You know, it's a very niche kind of job to get into and it's very technical and you can't you can't be trained overnight. And the, the problem in this context is that they are they may struggle to, to train enough customs officials to suddenly take on the work of. Uh, processing and checking and controlling, you know, thousands of consignments of goods coming in from Great Britain into Northern Ireland every day or every week. Right. Not a bad line to be in. The I think £7 billion was the figure. It was, again, not to not to be quoting the Financial Times every five minutes, but £7 billion <laughs> was the post-Brexit bureaucracy burden calculated at 210-odd million custom transactions at about 32.50 sterling each clocks up £7 yeah. billion. Just in that area, 
So, I mean, yeah, exactly, 50,000 yeah, yeah. customs agents are going into a, I mean, there's, there's obviously quite long-term and stable jobs in that, in that sphere anyway. Yeah, and there's, there's going to be a bonanza for the, the middlemen, you know, the, the, the middle persons, uh, the people who uh, will act as agents, as customs agents for uh, small and medium-sized businesses that simply can't afford to do it themselves or don't have the time or wherewithal to be grappling with, uh, you know, customs formalities. So you'll have, uh, you know, a cottage industry of uh, private operators who will do the job uh, for them. But, you know, again, they're, they're going to cost money. And, you know, will there be enough of, the, of those guys around as well? Yeah. And would they be interested in sponsoring a podcast, which is a question entirely for another day and an entirely other section of RTE. Um, <laughs> is, is that a good spot to leave it for this week, Tony? But, just, but before we do, can we have a look ahead to the coming week, which it's getting into crunch time is it a is it possible to call whether or not this end of July deadline is a realistic prospect as we look into next week? I mean, I think next week is going to be uh, very important because it is going to be the last big round of negotiations before the August break, and clearly the feeling in the EU is a sense of disappointment that the the promise that July seemed to offer up. Uh, hasn't been realized and that you know both sides have kind of crept a little bit back into their shells and the you know like if if they are going to find a workaround uh, on the ECJ whether it's for state aid or for uh, police and judicial cooperation I think last week we spoke spoke about the importance of uh, you know EU protections and court of justice protections when it comes to personal data and we saw again this week with the the Max Schrems case at the Court of Justice, how um, you know belligerent the European Court of Justice has become on on data privacy. Um, you know that the, the, there's not going to be a, a a rabbit pulled out of a hat at the last minute on this. It it will if you're going to get workarounds that are legally sound um, that avoid any references to EU law or the ECJ. Um, then that's going to take pages and pages of drafting, and that drafting has to start very soon. Um, now, I think in terms of August, the, they will get back into the negotiations after a two-week break. Um, so it's not like August is going to be uh, completely uh, deserted of negotiators. Um, but you know, the, you, you would you would have to say that next week is going to be a very important week for them to start unlocking some of these big issues. Okay, thanks Tony. That's it from me, Colm O'Mungoin, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor, in a kitchen in Kildare. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. Uh, I'll be taking a break, potentially a well-deserved break, so we will come back in some shape or form in the coming weeks to pick up the thread. And uh, once again, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.